Well, last week we looked at 2 Timothy 3.16 on the inspiration and authority of the Bible, and I said it was a good prelude, actually, to what we are beginning this week, uh, at least some portions of the life of Elijah. I ask that you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16. We will begin reading in verse 29 through chapter 17, verse 7. Now, David lived around the year 1000 B.C. His son Solomon succeeded him. When he died, the kingdom was divided around 933 B.C. The ten tribes in the north forming Israel, the southern tribe, Judah, Judah and Benjamin, a separate kingdom. So when you're reading First and Second Kings, you're reading about the division of the kingdom and these two separate kingdoms, separated because of sin. Jeroboam is the leader, the king of the ten northern tribes, Israel, Rehoboam of Judah in the south. Succession of kings, we come in this portion of First Kings to the reign of Ahab. He reigned for 22 years from about 870 to 850 in that area, B.C. And the northern kingdom will end in 722 B.C., carried off by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, will last until about 605 and 586, Jerusalem will fall. So we are in this portion of the reign of Ahab, and it is during this portion of the reign of Ahab that we find the ministry of Elijah the prophet. We're dealing with the north, with the northern tribes, with Israel, as we deal with the ministry of Elijah. Now let's pray before reading this portion of God's word. And now, Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we pray that we will see the connection, not only with the culture in which we live, but especially the church of which we are a part, that this is your word of redemption. This is the covenant of grace. You are working to bring the Messiah. You are working through history in this portion of Scripture to see that the promise that you have given all the way back in Genesis 3.15 is accomplished and that Jesus would come into the world. And so, Father, help us to see that this is all about Christ, and we pray that you will give to us, your people, the ability to take this word in and to apply it to our lives, and we pray that the lost among us may come to know Jesus. Praise be to your name that you are who you are, and we will begin to see something of that as we now turn to this, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings 16, beginning with verse 29. This is the word of God. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal 
and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Right in a row, seven evil kings in Israel. In the south, there was Asa, a good king who had a bad end. But there was never a good king in Israel, not one. Not one good king in the north during the entirety of that kingdom. These kings were spiritually bad men. And the scriptures show us how deeply the nation has gone into idolatry, which is really why I'm turning to these passages for a few weeks. Not simply because our culture has become so ungodly. I'm, I'm not so concerned with that, though we may touch on it from time to time in this series of sermons. I'm concerned for the church. I'm concerned for the idolatry in the church and in our lives. I'm concerned for the way in which the church is turning from her call and her mission and holiness of life. And so let these sermons challenge us as members of Christ Church to live faithfully, to acknowledge God's covenant, and to plead with God for the recovery of his church in our own land. So we come to these passages. The first thing we see is Ahab, the king of Israel, Ahab's disregard, his utter disregard for the word of the Lord. Ahab did evil in God's sight, the text tells us. Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zibni, Tibni, Omri, and then one more, Ahab, worse than all who were before him. Ahab reigned over Samaria for 22 years, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord above all of his predecessors. He married that wicked woman, Jezebel, and he worshipped her god, Baal, Baal. He passionately promoted idolatry. He made an Asherah, a lewd image of the female deity Astarte, which is the female counterpart of Baal. And he showed utter contempt for the word of the Lord and what God expected of a king in Israel. Ahab also was syncretistic. We read in chapter 16, verse 31, Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him, a king of Israel worshiping Baal. 
Now, it's been pointed out, and you might have noticed, that Ahab's children, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Athaliah, all retained some of God's name in their names, pointing to the fact that Ahab is syncretistic. Let's take Jehovah worship. Let's take Baal worship. We can mingle it. We can do fine. We'll mingle these cultural differences. We will mingle these religious differences. We will mingle these gods. We can do that. He was the kind of king that, um, that would have gone down the trail with his chariot and you would have seen on the back the bumper sticker, Coexist. The catalyst behind Ahab's zeal for Baal was his wife Jezebel of Sidonia who wanted the complete eradication of Jehovah worship. That is, she was a Phoenician and she worshipped the Phoenician Baal, but the Phoenician Baal and the Canaanite Baal are essentially the same. Baal worship was particularly sordid and ugly. And Ahab, king of Israel, had prostrated himself in the house of Baal And even in the New Testament, the name Jezebel, his wife, this Baal-worshipping Jezebel, his ugly wife, I mean ugly in her heart, is used of one wanting to entice the church from the truth. You find it in Revelation 2.20. So if Ahab was syncretistic, let's just mingle it all. Let me tell you, his wife was not a syncretist. She had one goal, and that was the eradication of Jehovah worship and the establishment of Baal worship. She wanted complete and utter devotion to the false god Baal. And in all of this, Ahab the king is rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is long before the coming of Christ into the world. But by not believing the promise of God, by not submitting himself to the word of God, not believing the promise that God would bring redemption to his people, He is rejecting Christ, and he is rejecting the covenant of grace. That's Baal. That's the false God. That's what it leads to, a total rejection of the covenant of grace. Well, next thing I want you to see, secondly, is that not only do we see this disregard on the part of this king of the the word of the Lord, but we see a specific instance of that, And we see it here in verse 34. In his days, which is to say under his leadership, under his auspices, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. Now this was wrong. And God's Spirit gives a clear example of the compromise under Ahab's reign from the start, right from the start. It shows how far contempt for the word of the Lord had gone. These were the walls that had collapsed when during the conquest the Lord had led the children of Israel to take Jericho. The problem? The problem is really simple. The Lord made it clear back in Joshua that the walls were not to be rebuilt. In Joshua 6 we read, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Way back there in Joshua, God said, don't do it. Don't rebuild these walls. And what are we seeing here? Again, we are seeing contempt for the word of the Lord. First, God said, do not do it. Secondly, Ahab is recognizing that Jericho is a strategic place. It's on a trade route. He wants to rebuild the walls. He wants to refortify the city so that it again will be a fortress. So the question is, will he trust in the Lord or will he trust in his own wisdom? 
He trusts in himself, in his own wisdom. And at the price of this disobedience, we find that Heal's children are dead, are killed. The moment that Heal put his spade into the ground, the curse of the Lord promised back in Joshua became effective. Look at verse 34. In his days, Heal of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. I'm going to rebuild the walls, said Ahab, through my servant, Heal. God took his firstborn. God took his youngest. You say, God wouldn't do such a thing. God's a God of love. Of course God's a God of love. He loves himself. He loves his own honor. He loves his word. He loves his truth. He loves his covenant people. Yes, he would do that. He did that. This is God's nature, and his nature is not changed. He will punish such deep impiety against his word. Old Matthew Henry said, None ever hardened his heart against God and prospered. And that's still true. None ever hardened his heart against God and prospered. So again, we find here a denial of the gospel. Ahab failed to look to Christ and foreshadow him in his reign. Thank God there's one king who came completely obedient to the covenant of God and obeyed all of his precepts that we might be saved. You know, someone has pointed out the sharp contrast between the building of these walls of Jericho and the building of the of the city of God, Jerusalem, the people of God. Jericho could only be built at the cost of blood. The church also was built at the cost of blood. The cost of Christ's blood. Heal built it illegally. Christ builds by fulfilling the demands of the law of God. O Ahab, O Heal, O people of God, we need a Savior because we have broken the law of God. Ahab, turn, repent, believe, trust the promise once again. But he rejects God's glory. You see, Jericho and its destroyed walls was a testimony to the Lord and his victory alone. God brought those walls down. Jericho speaks of God's judgment. Jericho's downed walls speak of the faith of God's people and the promise of God and his victory for them that he fights for his people. It speaks of his salvation. And so when you looked at those stones lying about, you were to think this was the Lord's doing. This was God's grace. This was God's might and this was God's power. This is the message of God's salvation and no one is to erase it. No one is to rebuild these walls. God is upholding his word, which is a constant theme throughout these chapters, you will notice. He is upholding his word. God's word is true and it will be fulfilled. You know, I think back on my college years and how my professors poured contempt upon the word of God in our classes. How they denied its inspiration, authority, inerrancy. How they poured contempt upon the Bible. My friend, the word of God is true. And when we are in heaven's glory, we will say with Joshua, not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass. Not one word of them has failed. And so you see, this is a dark time, isn't it? Ahab, the king, married to Jezebel, Attempting to combine the worship of Jehovah and the worship of Baal, which means the complete destruction of the true worship of God 
It means paganism, syncretism. This is a dark, dark time for the people of God. Well, Lord, do you have no plan to do them good? Will you permit this idolatry to continue? Will you bring your word to bear upon this situation? Did not David describe your covenant as ordered in all things? And sure, surely these are the prayers going up from the people of God in the midst of this darkness, just as we pray in the midst of darkness in the church today and in our own land and world. And it's in this darkness, and you see how dark it is, don't you? Do you see it? It's a darkness that can be felt. It's in the midst of this darkness that we now turn to chapter 17, which begins, Now Elijah the Tishbite. Yes, the Lord still has a remnant according to the election of grace for the sake of Christ, and God is the God who intervenes with sheer light in the darkness. And so the third thing we see is the Lord confronting Ahab with his word. We see it in verse 1 of chapter 17. Look at it. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now it's interesting that we know almost nothing about the background of this prophet Elijah. We know where he's from. It tells us that in the text. I heard a preacher when I was a boy call him a sun-scorched son of the desert. I've never forgotten the words. We know that about him for sure. He just appears. There he is. And that, that says enough. That which is most obscure, obscure is often most significant in the eyes of the living God. The message is the important thing. Not the messenger. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And you can hear Ahab over here saying, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Who is this fanatic anyway? But Elijah's name is the important answer. El God E Eli. My God, Yah, Elihah, my God, is Yahweh. There comes this prophet from the backwoods, standing before the king of Israel, who is doing all he can to destroy the pure worship of Jehovah. And God sends a prophet. Who is this guy? Well, his name is, my God is Yahweh. Maybe his father named him that, praying, Oh God, use my son to root out this ungodly religion from among us. I don't know. But I do know this. His calling is in his name. Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant name, the name given in Exodus 3 to Moses. I am that I am, the joy of God's people. But what terror it should strike in Ahab's heart. Because you see, this is not Ahab's history. It's not about Ahab. In the end, this is the history of the word of the Lord. Ahab provoked the Lord. He's using his power and prestige to lead the people of God into sin. And so deep was Baal worship that all the way into Jeremiah, at the time of the the captivity of the southern kingdom, that we find that Astarte, called the Queen of Heaven, was being sacrificed to 
by those who should know better. You know what the leading poll of Baal worship was, don't you? The leading poll of Baal worship was sensuality. I told you it was a grotesque and ugly religion. That was the pull, sensuality. You'd better be careful not to expose your soul to that false god. I'll tell you, when you've exposed your soul to the false god of sensuality, it's only the sovereign grace of God that can break you free. Evidences in our culture that we become officially pagan, nature worship, sexual license, just like this day. Sexual license in our culture to the point that we cannot even distinguish between the roles of men and women. Now, what does Elijah the prophet say? Baal worshippers thought that Baal was responsible for the rain. He was responsible for the crops. He was responsible for fertility. The prophet comes and he stands before the king. My name is Yahweh. God, not Baal. God gives the rain, not Baal. God brings fertility, not Baal. God brings blessing, not Baal. God is sovereign, not not Baal. God is God. Well, this is a very unpalatable message for a king who wants to turn everyone away from Jehovah to Baal worship, isn't it? It's a very unpalatable message this prophet has brought to this arch-worshipper Jezebel, as she will hear of it. It's a hard message for a henpecked king to receive. Because it's a message of either or. Not both and, no syncretism, no mingling of the two. It is either or, Jehovah or Baal. Make your choice. No philosophical game playing, no fudging. But, but maybe I can combine a little bit of Yahweh worship with a little bit of Baal worship. No, 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 my God is Yahweh. But don't you see, I have this wife, and this wife is always in my ear. And she's saying to me, no, 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 my God is Yahweh. And behind the name of Elijah comes the announcement, as the Lord lives. That's how he put it, as the Lord lives. Jehovah lives, not Baal. God said in the Ten Commandments, I am Yahweh your God, I am the Lord your God. Jezebel says, Baal and Astarte are your gods. But Yahweh is the living God, and he will not share his glory with another. That has not changed. There must be a separation. There can be no compromise. Elijah, just look, Elijah. If you'll just compromise a little, if you'll just take it easy with the king, maybe go with him into the house of Baal. You know, you can still worship Jehovah and just... just Maybe you can bring the whole nation back to Jehovah if you just take a different tact. Just compromise a little bit, Elijah. My God is Yahweh. There is no compromise. C.H. Spurgeon said, If an act of sin would increase my usefulness tenfold, I have no right to do it. And if an act of righteousness would appear likely to destroy my apparent usefulness, I am yet to do it. It is yours and mine to do the right though the heavens fall and follow the command of Christ, whatever the consequences may be. 
Now, this prophet Elijah is bringing God's covenant word. All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, you read things like this. Listen. God speaking to his people says, If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. That's what God said. So we have Elijah who comes and he says to the king, It's not going to rain. What is Elijah doing? Elijah is believing the Bible. Elijah the prophet is believing the word of God. This is what God said would happen when his people are disobedient to him. We read it this morning. Pastor McDonald, James 5, 17. Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. So behind this meeting... With Ahab, the king, this prophet Elijah has been on his knees before the Lord, and he has been pleading for the Lord to make his wrath known, to show his holiness and his justice, to honor his word, and to topple Baal from the hearts of the people, to show that Baal is nothing, and that the Lord controls everything, hence the prayer. Elijah did not have a complete canon. He didn't have the books of the Bible that you have. But the portion of the Bible that he had, he believed and he acted on. To whom much is given, much is required. You have far more. And the message reveals God's awesome presence. As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, says the prophet. He knew that he stood. He didn't say before whom I stood. Before coming to you, he says, before whom I stand, in the presence of the living God. You are a child of God living in the presence of the living God with death all around you. All around you. Do people see that when they meet you, when they talk with you, when they get to know you? That, you know, there's something different about this young man, this young woman, this man, this father, this mother, there's something different. What's different about them? What's different is you stand in the presence of the living God. What is the power of Christ's church today? Is it not the power of God's presence? Is it not that our God is Yahweh? Is it not that the Lord reigns? Is it not the power of prayer? My friends, it is not the world that determines the church. It is the little church the faithful covenant people of God that is used of the Lord in our prayers to determine the course of the world. In God's presence is the way that the prophet lived and is the way in which you and I are also called to live. And so the Lord cannot be limited to the realm of the soul. Let's just keep our religion over here to ourselves and never bring it into the public arena. Elijah couldn't do that. 
Because you see, the Lord Jehovah controls all things, even the weather. And the nation is about to feel his wrath and to stagger under his judgment. What does this say for generations to follow? Who say, yes, your fathers were in covenant with God. They believe the Bible. They believe these things. But we care nothing for it. Such a generation is asking for curse. But he will always have a people that he leads through the judgment safely. Fourth thing I want you to see is that the Lord preserves his prophet. God sends his prophet away. Look at chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. God sends his prophet away. This heightens the sense of judgment, does it not? It gives, it gives a certain awe to the word of the Lord. He has brought the word of the Lord and then he leaves. As if to say, this is God's fulfillment of his word. And there may come a day in which there will be a famine of the word of the Lord in the land. Hear my word, or the time will come when I will not speak to you and the consequences will be dire. When faithful proclaimers of the word of God are taken from the church and taken from a land, that is a sign of the judgment of God. Do you hear me? That's what we're seeing, people. That's what we're seeing. Can't you see that? But God fulfilled his covenant word. The rain stopped. The dew did not fall. The crops wither in the fields. The streams dry up. Just as God said it would through his prophet. God is king, not Ahab. The Lord is God, not Baal. Pray to Baal as you will. Nothing will happen. Not a drop of rain will fall from the sky. God sends his message and then he withdraws his prophet and see it happen. The smoke of the altars of Baal ascends in vain. It accomplishes nothing because Baal is nothing. False gods are nothing. And we devote our lives to those things that are nothing. And misery befalls the land. There shall be Neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And God provides for his prophet. I love this, don't you? In verses 3 and 4, he tells him to depart, goes to the brook Cherith. There he has water. You shall drink from the brook that I've commanded and the ravens will feed you there. I've tried to imagine that. I don't know if I'd like the idea of being fed from the beak of a raven. And he's being well fed. He's, he has bread and meat. And Where did it come from? Did the Lord cook it up for him? Did he take it from the king's table? <laughs> I don't know. But Elijah had catered food. The rest of the land, they don't have crops. They don't have water. 
They're scrounging for a living. This man, morning and evening, has all that he needs. The Lord provides for his prophet. I have commanded the ravens. S.G. DeGraff says, How comforting this must have been for Elijah. Israel itself seemed to have the raven's nature, taking everything for itself and looking out only for itself. Would the word of grace be able to overcome this wickedness in Israel's life just as it compel the ravens to serve the Lord? This thought strengthened Elijah greatly in his prophetic calling. There was still hope for Israel. Now remember, Baal worshipers claim that Baal controlled nature, not Jehovah. But who is directing the ravens? Is it Baal? It's Jehovah. Now many of God's true people suffer with the ungodly in Israel during this time, during this drought. We cannot take from this that the Lord does not have his people suffer in the judgments that he brings upon the earth. That would not be so. We must depend upon God's grace and persevere, often without ravens, to feed us. As a matter of fact, at this very time, we are told in chapter 18, verse 4, Obadiah was bringing bread and water to feed the prophets of God. But here's the point. Elijah is the mouthpiece for God. He is the prophet. He's the spokesman of the word of the Lord. And the Lord is showing that he's caring for his word. That's the point here. While the nation is without water and food, Elijah is fed because God is preserving the mouthpiece of his word. God is hiding his word, preserving his word for the sake of his people. There was more revelation he intended to bring through the mouth of the prophet to his people. How might you take encouragement from this word in this portion of scripture? Maybe you're filled with self-pity and maybe you're a defeatist. Maybe you look around and you do see that things are dark in our culture and dark in much of the professing church today. Well, I ask you, is your God Yahweh? Do you and I follow the God that we profess? Do I trust the God that my theology confesses? Things seem hopeless. What do we do? We trust his word and we pray and we depend. God is at work whether you see it or not. And God will not let his word fall, but will accomplish the purpose to which he sends it. Let us remember that there was another prophet greater than Elijah that had to leave the covenant community. And through Elijah's prayer, God's wrath was called upon the people. But through Jesus' prayer, the wrath of God was called upon himself. Christ was alone and not fed by ravens and became the sin bearer in complete isolation for his people. And through his isolation, the covenant blessing comes upon the people of God. Well, that's our introduction to Elijah the prophet. Let's bring some final thoughts. The first final thought is this. I want to bring to you a word of encouragement. God's word is true and he will see it fulfilled. His people are to live on that word, to hang upon that word. Indeed, when things are dark, his word will not fail. His people are called to hold to our prophet, who also is our priest and our king. God has never left himself without a witness. The Lord will always honor his word. He will always be faithful to his covenant promises to his redeemed people. God always does what he says he will do. Secondly, let me bring a word of challenge. 
Because God absolutely hates what is permeating our culture, but also large segments of the church today. God absolutely hates syncretism. Christ mingled with other philosophies and religions and viewpoints. God hates it. That's the point in these passages. God is God and God alone is God and we are to worship him alone. Syncretism says you can still have a place for Jesus, but you cannot serve two masters. How dare Ahab have a marital relationship with Jezebel? How dare the king of Israel bow down to the image of Baal? There's a New Testament passage that is very applicable here. Turn in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Many passages, but we're looking at one. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following. Some of you know this and have applied it to the issue of the marriage between a believer and unbeliever. Yeah, but it's far, far broader in its application than this. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them And walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, this is what the people of God were facing then. It is what the people of God are facing now. We cannot serve two masters. It's all or nothing. No box for Jehovah, another box for Baal. It's easy for us to say we submit to the Lordship of Christ until that thing comes along that I really want to do. Right? Oh, Christ is my Lord. But then that unbeliever comes along that this young lady wants to marry. What happened to the Lordship of Christ all of a sudden? Compromise that doctrine for the sake of being more palatable. What's happened to the Lordship of Christ? Tell a lie so that you can get ahead in business. What's happened to the Lordship of Christ? So the test is this. Do I acknowledge Christ's lordship when it costs? Like this pastor Yosef in Iran, almost three years in prison, beaten in prison for his confession of Christ. And when he would be brought by the tribunal into the court, and they would say to him, will you abjure Christ and Christianity? Every time his simple words were these, I cannot So there's no syncretism, there's no blending, 
of idolatry in Christianity. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is such a person that the entire universe must revolve around him. He is such a person that your universe must revolve around him. It is God or Baal, not God and Baal. And if you're lost, let me tell you, there's only one Savior. Not many, but one. And if you refuse Christ and his atoning work on the cross, you refuse salvation altogether. So let me end with a probing question. I think it's a probing question. It's probed my heart all week. Is the passion of your life that the bales of our day be totally discredited and that the Lord alone be exalted? Is your life characterized by a holy indignation against apostasy and a holy zeal for the glory of God, as old Matthew Henry put it? How do I show this? Well, do you not think that one way it will show is when you submit your life, every inch of it, to the Word of God? That that's your desire, that's your passion, that's your longing, that's your direction? To display the Lord's uniqueness, daily believing and repenting and laboring to be rid of all syncretism, all mixture of false gods in your thinking and in your living. To be rid of mingling your faith and the worldview of a lost culture. That's your call. To be able to say with Elijah, in the midst of a culture that hates the truth and hates God's word, come what may, my God is Yahweh. Vantavir, great Dutchman, good Dutch theologian. Listen. Woe to the church whenever she seeks refuge in syncretism and thereby manifests her own impotence. We must respect the boundaries that the God of the covenant has drawn between the world and the church of all ages. We must accept the offense of the Lord's election joyfully. In fact, we must welcome it by living as a separated, set-apart people, that is, a sanctified people. That is how we must approach the choice that still leaves the world wondering the question, who is God? We must live a living, we must give a living, powerful testimony that Yahweh, our Lord, is the one and only God.